This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So you know you've really made it as a Twitter celebrity when someone impersonates you. Have you? Ever, has anyone here had that problem lately? That's true. It's funny you should ask Shane. <gasps> really? Somebody is impersonating me on Twitter. What? They like created an account. It has my Twitter picture. They spelled my name wrong, which just feels <laughs> sloppy, frankly. H e n n e s s y. But that's an so that they can make clear that it's not actually you. But they it's like real Donald Trump. And then they like they follow like a bunch of news organizations. So have they tweeted anything? No. That's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. But you know, Susan, if- it's a mark of your it's a mark of how um, powerful you are that exactly. somebody wants to impersonate you. Want to they want to steal me. your thunder. I'm feeling very inferior now that I don't have an impersonator. But what you do have is a blue check mark. Whereas, once again, returning to the perpetual tale of my humiliation, me and Julian Assange are not verification worthy. <laughs> I think Julian Assange is the one impersonating you. You know what? <laughs> That's a good theory. I think we just cracked the case. <laughs> Yeah, I'm mostly offended just by the poor spelling. I, you know, come on, E Y. Yeah, E Y. No excuse for so sloppiness in that. your satire, you know, sir. Exactly. I don't. I'm, is it satire? They haven't said anything yet. Wow, this is like potential for satire. It's like a stalker. Ooh, another S word. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Guns, Butter, and Palace Intrigue Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. Here in a chilly, well, it's not chilly in the jungle studio today, but it's cold outside. It is, it is cold. Freezing. There are icicles on the deck. There are s- snow on the tulips. It's the I last know, I gasp. The cherry of blossoms are all gone. Yeah, are they gone? Did they officially were killed off by this? I mean, I don't. I haven't looked at all of them. But it's I so think so it's the bad cruel, news. cruel trick here is that it was so warm and beautiful President's Day weekend that I went and like raked all the dead leaves off the plants in my garden, let the little green shoots breathe and mm-hmm. feel the sun, and now they are all frozen and oh dead. Oh my god! Yeah, you, oh, it's so sad. Yeah, it happens oh, every few years. It does. I was gonna put like burlap all over my rose bushes, then I realized that Joe would think I'd turn into a crazy person. Oh, I mean, this you, would be the thing that Do you think me. that Joe doesn't think you're <laughs> Now it's a settled matter. <laughs> I thought you were okay until you started putting burlap on the rose bushes. That's so sweet that you care about the rose bushes that much. No, they're, they're really hardy little bastards, though, so I think they're going to be okay. See, I think the They only- would take over the house if I let them, so they're probably just laughing at me for worrying. And if you try to cut them back too hard, they'll poke you. They will, and they'll come back. I wonder dungeons. what's going to happen to the White House Rose Garden. I can't really see Melania out there with you know, pruning that, Didn't they announce that they were keeping Michelle Obama's garden? 
vegetable garden. Oh, that's nice. I must yeah. have missed that. <laughs> they have staff for that. Oh, good. Yeah, oh, good. Have, <laughs> we have staff. Uh, and we have a podcast this week on the show. There's a lot that's been happening this week, you guys. We're going to try and unpack all of it deftly for you. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the Trump administration expanding operations against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. A lot going on there. Also, the administration wants to shrink the budget for the State Department. And what do personnel moves tell us about who's in charge of the Trump national security apparatus? Um, let's first, let's get to this first. This There are two things happening in the sort of the broadly in counterterrorism right now that were of note this week. One, uh, an ex- uh, increase in the number of ground forces in Syria. Uh, also, changing rules in how the Defense Department and the CIA can target terrorist suspects with drones. Let's take first, I mean, tomorrow I'll kick to you first. And we should note, by the way, Ben's not here. I didn't even mention that. We were having such a good time and Ben's not even here. Yeah. He's in California in the sunshine. I hear that you guys had too good of a time when I was away. It made me really jealous. No, we we should have a good time here. The potty mouths. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's sitting up straight in their chair. (laughs) School Marm Wittis is back. Right. right, right. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Tell me, Miss Coffin. About this expansion of ground forces in Syria. Um, so, so what do we make of this? I mean, we're, we're seeing obviously we've, we've seen Marines on the ground now, uh, manning artillery units. There are not just forces that are special forces. They're advising uh, on the, you know sort of indigenous troops. Uh, now there's talk of hundreds more, possibly up to a thousand. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, going in. I mean, so what do we? Let's start with that. I mean, what do we make of the expansion of that ground force in the fight against ISIS uh, in Syria and Iraq? So, you know, I spent last week actually in um, in uh, the Kurdish part of Iraq in in the KRG, uh, and all of the conversation was about uh, the fight against ISIS. Of course, in Iraq, the fight for Mosul, but also who will take Raqqa in Syria, the ISIS headquarters in, on Syrian territory. And, uh, and this is because the United States working with Kurdish, uh, Syrian Kurdish fighters, um, have been taking territory from the north. And, uh, the Syrian government with a lot of help from Russian air power and Iranian, uh, backed militias, uh, have been taking ground toward Raqqa as well. And so it, there's a question of, um, you know, is it like Berlin? <laughs> Who's going to get there first? Uh, or, it, you know, is there the possibility for what some have anticipated for a while, a sort of U.S.-Russian uh, agreement on cooperating against ISIS in Syria? So the first thing I would say is that the choice to send a th- uh, up to a thousand additional U.S. forces uh, into Syria is a recognition that the United States doesn't actually have a lot of capable ground partners uh, in the fight in Syria, the the Kurdish forces and very, very limited numbers of Arab forces um, with whom it's been working uh, have limited capability and limited reach. Um, and so they need to be augmented. Um, but it's also, I think, a bit inevitable uh, because the United States has had uh, significant differences with Turkey, um, which is, you know, the other potential major partner on the ground. Uh, they've had significant differences with them over their support of, of the Kurdish militias and over the broader strategy for Syria. And so at the end of the day, if um, it's the judgment of the Trump administration to f- that they need to focus on ISIS and defeating ISIS and worry about the rest of Syria later, 
Um, and that, by the way, is a judgment that they would share with the Obama administration before them, then they kind of have to do this on their own. <laughs> um, and so I suspect that these 1,000 will not be the last additions of forces that we'll see to U.S. efforts against ISIS in Syria. Um, you know, but if the United States gets more deeply enmeshed in the battle for Raqqa, and if it's U.S. forces who participate in the liberation of Raqqa from ISIS, I do think it begs the question of what the U.S. is going to, uh, how the U.S. is going to leverage that um, on behalf of a broader outcome in Syria. And does this give the United States more bargaining power with respect to the Russians and Syrians and Iranians? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of the, the other looming question is if we um, if we do have cooperation with Russia, um, <laughs> What uh, what are we what are we giving up in exchange for that? Right. So um, we've heard again and again, the Trump administration allude to the possibilities of lifting sanctions against Russia uh, for their invasion of Crimea, um, often linked to this notion of in response in return for cooperation in defeating ISIS. Um, uh, most experts, if not all experts, have said those are two things that have nothing to do with one another. That would be a terrible deal, sort of to put it in, in the language of Donald Trump's deals. Um, but that uh, if we're going to be moving down this path, uh, whether or not it is, uh, it's going to become either a pretext for doing something that the administration already wants to do, um, or whether or not the Russians are going to see this as an opportunity to uh, apply pressure and try and get some of those sanctions lifted with potentially pretty significant consequences in terms of the recognition of sovereignty and, and consequences for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other question on the table here is, um, and one that I think a lot of regional and European actors are starting to ask themselves is, um, if the United States is now getting more deeply involved, you know, what does that mean for who's going to rebuild Syria and who's going to sort of own the problem of Syria uh, when this fight against ISIS is over? You know, there are a lot of folks who have been happy to see the United States stay largely out of the Syrian civil war. And after the Russian intervention said, well, the pottery barn rule applies to Moscow too. And they've just bought Syria and it's their problem. Um, but I actually think that, um, that the Europeans who have been suffering so much from the refugee flows out of the civil war are ready to invest money in Syrian reconstruction and, and relief. Uh, and they would, want to see America participate in that effort. So I think even though this is a very risky kind of slippery slope for the United States, some of our partners in the region and in Europe might see it as a positive development. Do you guys think that, I mean, given what we've seen from reports that the administration is delegating more authority to the military on various strikes, and there's this sort of the broadening sense that the White House wants to stop micromanaging military efforts, and we'll talk about this in a second with regards to drones. I mean, can we read what's going on here as sort of this is the military kind of getting the war that it wanted and moving forward with it? Or should we not assume that the president is just sort of signing the checks and not really watching the, the potential mission creep that's going on here? Well, I, you know, Shane, I actually think that's a really good question because everything that I just said assumes that there's some kind of broader strategy here. And it may be that there's not at all that, you know the president said, I want you to defeat ISIS. And and the uniforms said, okay, we need more guys. Right, right. And Trump said, fine, do what you need to do. Right. And there, you know, and, and it, it, that may in fact be the most likely 
uh, explanation is that this is a military-driven decision, and it's not actually linked to a broader policy strategy for Syria or for post-ISIS uh, stability in the Middle East. So this gets at the, then the second part of this, I mean, expansion of authorities. Um, we broke a story this week, and some others had pieces of a related piece of this, that the president is doing two things. One, giving the CIA back authority to do lethal drone strikes, which is something that it had not been doing in, in recent years. Really what the CIA had been doing is tracking terrorist suspects, the sort of the find and fix portion of the find, fix, finish sequence, as they <laughs> like to say. What a sequence it Yeah, is. and then handing off the finish part to the Defense Department, uh, which on the on the surface of it sounds – Maybe to some people a little bit silly, like, well, you're just telling the Defense Department like where to shoot and then pulling, letting them pull the trigger. But there were a number of policy reasons the administration, the Obama administration, put in place for doing that, which now those seem to be being lifted. And there is talk uh, about, across the board, lowering the acceptable threshold of risk for civilian casualties. So making it so that even in places outside of traditional theaters of war like Iraq and Syria right now for instance that you would that the military or the CIA neither would have to have a near certain standard that there wasn't going to be collateral damage and that you know not that they would just you know recklessly be going around bombing people but that you would lower the threshold a bit and with that delegating more authority to the intelligence community and to the military to to make those calls about people that they wanted to go after. I mean, it strikes me that if we if we take this in in total, I mean, again, I think it's a bit early to say, but this does seem to be very much in keeping with Trump's approach, at least as he telegraphed it to us. I don't know if he ever explicitly said this in the campaign that he would favor listening to the generals and and, and in in his business, he delegates to the experts. And these are the guys who are tracking terrorists? Fine. Put them in charge of finishing off the terrorists and get the White House and, you know, to some extent, I suppose, the lawyers out of that process, which they have been deeply involved in in the Obama administration. I mean, targets were approved at the highest levels. People complained of bottlenecking in the White House and the NSC staff. Um, I don't know. Is, is this Are we seeing, I mean, basically Trump living up to what we expected of him when it comes to fighting terrorists. Yeah, so I think it's um, it's unclear how much is sort of just pure personality driven, right? So whether or not, you know, Mike Pompeo has his ear or Mattis has his ear sort of in, in a less, even sort of less tied to his uh, uh, broader impulses or strategies. Um, that said, I do uh, I do think the sort of question of de-lawyering it um, uh, is is part of what's going on. So sort of the, the essential um, legal distinction is that whenever the CIA conver- uh, conducts drone strikes, they do it under uh, Title 50, which governs sort of covert operations. Um, so the Obama administration had not loved that because you aren't really supposed to or allowed to acknowledge covert operations publicly, right? So Obama really wanted to sort of go to the public and explain why they were doing this and acknowledge responsibility for these strikes. And when it was at CIA, legally speaking, it was, it was uncomfortable to square that with it being a true covert op. When JSOC operates, um, this is a military arm. They do it under Title 10. So it's much easier to sort of be uh, up front. Um, and so uh, we've seen that Donald Trump is potentially more comfortable with legal ambiguity, right? Even if there's a small ability, like he's just, he, that doesn't seem to bother him nor his, his staff right, potentially. Right. The other sort of uh, uh, 
thing is that it's not clear that he would care about making sort of the the rationale to the public, um, right? So so maybe he doesn't share that uh, that higher level instinct. Well, I mean, clearly he said that, you know by like telegraphing or, or talking about the fact that we were going to go into Mosul was giving the enemy a chance to run away, what? even though there are you know plenty of good reasons why you announce a military campaign ahead of it. I think there's also um, there's a policy context for Obama's what some might call micromanagement. Um, which is that number one, he was elected twice on a platform of ending wars, right. and so that meant that and he, he promised increased transparency, right? And so he felt, you know, the need to make sure he was following through on that promise, which is a different promise than the one Donald Trump made, which is to defeat ISIS um, and to double down or scale up or whatever uh, that anti-ISIS fight. Um, but the other thing, you know, going back to something we talked about a couple weeks ago with respect to Yemen, where you know. Obama's approach, which was a very lawyerly approach, and it was a very lawyer-heavy approach um, in setting rules and enforcing rules of engagement in the counterterror fight. And, you know, any um, change in administration was going to at least temporarily give the the folks who do this work um, a little less uh, – they would be under a little less constraint. And so – you know, we saw in the Yemen case that it's quite possible that this early uh, raid that was conducted early in the Trump administration was the result of just, you know, giving the military a little more leash. Um, and uh, and I speculated that that might lead to additional uh, to additional steps down this road. And, you know, maybe that's what we're seeing, both with the additional deployment in Syria and now with with the drone strikes. The I I wonder and worry a bit, though, um, whether the slippery slope that to an extent Obama was already on in the ISIS fight is accelerated by this kind of choice by the white by the Trump White House. I mean, I think the other thing that is it's possibly signaling or, or maybe that Trump will run up against the reality of is whether or not he cares about getting consent from the countries in which we're operating. Um, so countries like Pakistan, in which Obama had um, had been more committed to sort of wanting that. Uh, except when he didn't. Except <laughs> when he didn't. Right. So there was but there but at least sort of on on paper was interested in being committed to that. Um, there are some countries that are more or less comfortable with the CIA operating in their territory versus the military or vice versa. So it will be interesting whether or not he even engages those partners, even thinks about the countries in which these places are occurring, and to the extent he is um, operating in a way that is inconsistent with those countries' preferences, whether or not there are consequences for that. Okay, so here's my question to you, Shane. As you, you know, as you kind of report this drone strike story, um, part of the controversy about CIA doing this before was, you know, the potential for conflict or tension between CIA and DOD um, in terms of whose job it is in which place, right? right. So do you see that reemerging? Yeah. And in fact, somebody, I, I, A, yes, because there's a fight over resources that the military thinks the CIA is hogging all of its drones all the time and they, they don't like, and I'm speaking in broad terms here to make the, the point, but you hear a lot of criticism from the military that CIA takes too long because they have this higher threshold and they you know, they go back in and they do damage assessments and we just kind of like do the mission and we move on. That's not to say the military is careless or reckless, but there's a different mentality and they see the CIA guys, I think, as being more kind of plotting and careful and slow. So there's that. But somebody raised an interesting point to me, which was that they thought it was an irony um, that 
in the move to kind of put things under the title 10 imprimatur and the interest of transparency, you had the military taking more drone strikes and often under a lower threshold of collateral damage concerns, which this person kind of spun this as, in the interest of transparency, you ended up possibly killing a lot more innocent civilians. Wow. And I thought it was actually quite cynical of human rights groups to say, no, 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 transparency is better, even when this person claimed it had been put to them. Like, you know that the CIA, even though less transparent, um, is got a probably better track record of not killing innocent bystanders. And I, I wonder to what extent you might see that debate emerging where people in the intelligence community say, yes, we do things under the color of Title 50 and therefore can't talk about it because then we would sort of shred the meaning of Title 50 and ruin all other covert you know, capabilities. But we actually do a more credibly safer job of going after these people than the military. Now, if the, if the bar gets lowered across the board, that argument doesn't hold. But yeah, but I think that the the bureaucratic battles for this, you're going to see that playing out. I mean, it won't be probably as significant to most people as the real policy argument, but you know, they're already, you know, each side is kind of dug in here. Um, I think the military would generally regard this as a good week. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to our second topic. Uh, the I think it was I think it was the current Secretary of Defense who once said that if you're going to shrink the budget of the State Department or take away my diplomat diplomats, you're going to have to give me more bullets. Do I have that right? He he said if you cut state, you'll have I'll have to buy more ammunition. I'll have to buy more ammunition. He said that and Trump was, was like, uh, okay, okay, yeah. I'll buy more ammunition. Bu- I got a great deal on beautiful bullets. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, the Trump administration is proposing massive cuts to the State Department budget, a huge increase in the Defense Department budget. Uh, James Mattis, before he was Secretary of Defense. Uh, gave his reasoning why he thought that was a bad idea. Um, Tamara, walk us through like what this possibly 30% is that what we're talking now? Reduction of the state department budget? Like a, is that even possible? Is this just, is this just DOA and B, I mean, can you even have a state department operating at that kind of reduction? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I haven't dug into the details of um, what they're proposing to cut within what's called the Function 150 account that funds operations at state and USAID and also our foreign assistance. <laughs> um, that's all in, in one account. Um, but in macro terms, uh, what we see is uh, cuts of 29% at the State Department, 31% at the Environmental Protection Agency, um, and really significant cuts across about a dozen different departments of the federal government in order to fund, A, tax cuts, and B, uh, modest increases in uh, Veterans Affairs, Homeland Security, and and DOD. So DOD would see a 9% increase, so about if you put those three together, it's a little over $60 billion increase for those three agencies and about a $54 billion cut for the the dozen or so agencies that are taking the hit. And so really what you see is it's very large scale cuts in a whole lot of different parts of the federal government to fund a very modest increase in in a few parts of the federal government. And that led uh, a former colleague of mine from the administration, Kelly Magsman, to to note on Twitter that the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Hmm. Um, it's notable that, you know, when when word of this trade-off first leaked out, John McCain's immediate reaction was, well, that doesn't increase the, Depar- the Depar- Department of Defense's budget enough. 
you know, so you can eviscerate EPA and state and aid and all these other places and still not come up with enough money to do what Republicans who want to increase defense spending really want to do. Um, and that tells you just how small these civilian departments' budgets are relative to the Defense Department. Um, now, you know, what does this mean for state and aid? I, I think there are a couple things that are worth noting. The first is that, um, you know, the original rumors were of cuts to Function 150 of 37 percent. The original OMB proposal to state was something on that order. And what ultimately came out after apparently some back and forth between Secretary Tillerson and OMB is a 29% cut. So, you know, for all the grumbling about Tillerson, it seems as He got that 8%, man. Yeah, you know, he got a little bit back. Maybe he could have done better if he'd really worked it, um, (laughs) if he'd actually stayed in the country while this back and forth was going on. Uh, But, you know, number two is I I will be surprised uh, if a 29% cut stands. I... I think that um, folks on the Hill, number one, are already hearing from from uh, DOD uniforms and civilians about how important foreign assistance and, and diplomacy are for them to succeed at their jobs. In other words, <laughs> you can achieve a military victory, but how do you make it sustainable? How do you how do you how do you make it a strategic victory if you don't have the diplomacy and assistance to hold that ground? And and so I think that's gonna weigh heavily on appropriators. And also, you know, let's be honest, state and foreign ops appropriations is a subcommittee uh, in both House and Senate. So there are members of Congress Congress, whose job it is to control that budget, and they don't want to control a shrinking budget. Right. They want to control a growing budget. So you know, the, and then there are all the um, the contractors and the American businesses and others who have a stake in American diplomacy around the world. So I think there are constituents who are lobbying for restoration of of foreign aid in the face of these cuts. And, you know, it'll probably shrink, but not this much. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's sort of being lost here is um, the president doesn't set the budget. Congress does. Right. Right. Congress has the powers of the person. This ultimately is their decision. So Trump can suggest or propose whatever he wants to. It's his opening offer. Right. Exactly. And I think he is right. He he is sort of thinking about it in those terms. But uh, (laughs) that's not really his job. Right. This is Congress's job. And so I, I think you have to sort of look to those voices to see where, the, where their instincts are. The other thing is just um, sort of the, the carelessness of burning political capital, right? So the immediate story that has emerged from this budget is um, cuts to Meals on Wheels, uh, cuts to EPA, right? So um, uh, for every day that Trump is at Mar-a-Lago, 166,000 seniors go hungry, right? I mean, this stuff is just, uh, uh, it's sort of, it's a, it's a political attack ad dream. Yeah, it writes itself. Exactly. Yeah. And so Trump may not be feeling the heat because he's, you know, however many years away from, uh, from uh, you know, possible re-election. Um, but members of Congress are certainly thinking about that. And so this is just such a, a sort of ham-fisted, not particularly savvy machete, <laughs> unless the goal is, of course, to be this huge disruptive sort of jerk in, in the process. Well, OK. Yeah, I, I think you're right. But I think that goes to what is powerful about this is that it is a very strong signal from the administration about its intentions 
and about its attitudes toward the the agencies that it oversees. And so even if this OMB budget is dead on arrival on the Hill, and I agree with you, it largely is, um, it sends signals down the chain to these agencies, you know, people who work with, if you work at EPA and you saw this outcome, you're, you're looking for another job right now because you know that a huge number of people are going to be laid off and the ones that remain are not going to have any resources with which to do their job. And the White House has just told you that they don't give a crap about what you do. And that's true at EPA. It's true at state. It's true at the other um, agencies that are seeing significant cuts. And then there are the places that got zeroed out completely, like the Overseas Private Investment Corporation or the U.S. Trade and Development Office. And, you know, so I, I think that in kind of bureaucratic terms, but it matters. The signals being sent will cause brain drain from the federal government. There will automatically be a contraction of the government, no matter what gets appropriated, because people are, are going to flee. I think that's I, I agree with that. And I, I this I put this in the same category as the first version of the executive order and frankly, maybe the second version of the executive order on immigration and refugees in, in the following way that these aren't so much poli- their policy ambitions, but they're also political gestures, big political gestures. So in the case of the immigration ban, it's we're cracking down on people from these countries. In this case, it's we're going to get rid of those, you know, like the, the era of soft power is over. It hasn't done anything. The diplomats are all lefties anyway. We're pumping up the military. And these really sort of like blunt instruments that even inspire, you know, people in uniform to say, this is really not the way that you do it. No, actually, we need these people who work in the State Department, even though you might think that there's some kind of oppositional force. That's not the point. It sends the broader message, I think, you know, to the Trump base that we're making good on promises. We're going with our instincts. You know, it's about hard power, not soft power. It's about shutting down the border. And they haven't really thought that through. And I mean, and clearly, even this budget doesn't seem to be the product of any like actual interagency deliberation. Otherwise, you you, you wouldn't have had Rex Tillerson coming on the back end, getting that 8% back. They just put this stuff out there, it seems to me. Take the grab the headline and then ah, we'll work the details out later. But it's that initial punch that has met the scent. I think the message. I I think you're right. I guess the one thing I would say to Susan's point, though, is that you know there is an agenda with Congress, and the White House has to decide where it's going to spend its capital. And you know, if you're thinking about uh, building longer term uh, political support then the natural choice for the White House would have been to do an infrastructure bill first. Instead, they've chosen to do the health care repeal and replace, which is turning into an utter catfight within the Republican Party. They have a continuing resolution that expires in a few more weeks, and they're going to have a fight on the Hill between Republican budget hawks and everybody else about just the rest of this fiscal year. And now they've put out a budget uh, which is going to gore a lot of oxes and create a lot of tension, including with Republicans on the Hill. And so I feel like where the White House has chosen to spend its capital in these budget battles may leave it with very little gas left as um, as members of Congress start thinking about midterm elections. Yep. So one of the things that um, uh, Julia Afi wrote a little bit about sort of what was happening at the State Department, and she has a pretty, uh, she got a pretty uh, incredible quote as her kicker. Um, <laughs> this is a mid-level State Department officer who says there's 
there seems to be no effort to benefit from the knowledge and expertise of people who are here to help, who just want to help. Instead, they see the White House vilifying them as bureaucrats no one elected, and it all seems, the mid-level officer said, symbolic of wanting to neuter the organization. And this is the best quote. This is probably what it felt like to be a British Foreign Service officer after World War II, when you realize that, no, the sun actually does set on your empire. America is over. And being part of that, uh, when it's happening for no reason, is traumatic. Okay, so I I read that quote, and it's very evocative, and I understand why they would feel that way. But it's not that the world is pushing. It's not like the British Empire, where the world changed. Here, it is a decision by the White House to starve the government of resources. So what is it that is destroying American leadership in the world? The president of the United States. All right. (laughs) Mike dropped. (laughs) I'm feeling it. I brought the heat today. That's right. He did. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to our third topic. Um, Personnel moves. There are so many personnel moves or thwarted personnel moves, (laughs) as the case may be, uh, going on the administration. Um, uh, Just to hit a couple of them. Ann Patterson has been rejected as undersecretary for policy, right, at the Defense Department, who is Secretary Mattis' pick. He can't have her. Uh, Dina Powell is coming in as the deputy national security for policy, which is funny because KT McFarland is also the deputy national security advisor. So we have two. One of them is for policy and the other one is Is for, for, I don't know, drapes? A portrait? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What's going on there? (laughs) Uh, And and, uh, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, had tried and failed to... Uh, a sideline the uh, individual who's in charge of the intelligence portfolio for the NSC staff, Ezra Cohen Watnick, who uh, is 30 and a Defense Department case officer. And apparently the CIA looked at him and said, nah, <laughs> and uh, Trump looked at him and said, yeah, you're saying. Um, so I guess this is actually more of a story about thwarted personnel changes and I mean it's kind what does of, this tell us it's kind of both so it's it's weird mixed messages so first um, I think it's true the, the astonishing fact that there is not only no one uh, other than uh, Tillerson and Mattis confirmed at either the Department of Defense uh, or the State Department but no one else has been nominated right let's right? let's underscore that fact that for is a second astonishing <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. that's just that on its own is, is incredible then the idea that that their picks are actually being rejected so uh, you you know the the fact that um, that Patterson, who is a, a career State Department employee, you know, sort of a four time ambassador, assistant secretary of state, incredibly good relations on the Hill, kind of like the person you would want to be in a senior right, exactly role. like yeah. the the exact sort of person you would want to be in that role. Um, or so maybe so- like a deputy secretary of state, but wait, we're waiting on those two. <laughs> well, and also that sort of that the reported rationale for rejecting her was essentially that she had carried out some of the Obama administration's policies. Well, yeah. Well, she was an employee of the Obama administration. She worked for the executive branch. So the message that it sends sort of of, you know, being punished for just for doing loyalty. your job. Yeah. I mean, not and she's willing to work for you now. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that itself is sort of is is alarming. Um, it also indicates that that Mattis is not a, like, sort of doesn't have enough control. Right. So people who were hoping that Mattis would be the great savior here. Right. Um, and it's not like she, you know, signed an anti-Trump letter or campaigned against Trump or something like that. This is somebody who is implementing the previous administration's policy and is now being blacklisted 
simply for having done that. Right. So I think I think both that and this notion of uh, of McMaster, uh, uh, you know, who came in among questions of whether or not he would really be able to control personnel and that, you know, personnel being policy and that being an incredibly important thing. You know, the notion that uh, that Bannon and Kushner could intercede on behalf of this person and essentially overrule McMaster. Those are both indications that. Like there is no control over over personnel, and so these people are just sort of powerless figureheads, and and Bannon essentially is, you know, right. Like if you cannot, here. as the national security advisor, with no offense to Mr. Cohen Watnick, remove a thirty year old case officer with, from and the not NSC even fire staff, him, but move him into a different, a different job. position. Maybe he's very talented, but like clearly the CIA has misgivings about this individual running the intelligence portfolio for the National Security Council staff. Well, I I guess I would say a couple things. Number one, where is Reince Priebus? You know, in all of this, you know, we have again this set of stories Drinking about. Been in his cocoa puffs Seriously, again. I mean, the chief of staff is supposed to be the gatekeeper and the ringleader and the stage manager, or pick your metaphor, the orchestra conductor of the White House and and ultimately of relations between the agencies and the president. And he's just absent from all these stories. I find that really, really striking. So, you know, when we ask about who doesn't have authority, the chief of staff clearly does not have authority. Or is it using it? But then there is these sort of countervailing stories that are emerging, right? So so that McMaster was able to hire Dina Powell essentially to replace KT McFarland. Well, but let's remember, Dina Powell had already joined the administration so she was already somebody who was on the white list, on the OK list, right? And right. it was just moving her into right. another role and not displacing McFarland, but simply adding, right? And someone who's actually going to do the work. I guess, although if I came into the office and Ben said, Susan, I'd like to introduce you to the managing editor of Lawfare, <laughs> I would consider no, that the, the managing being editor of Lawfare for policy. Yeah, and process <laughs> and publishing. <laughs> so you can remain the managing editor of Lawfare. I just have one for policy over here. Right, right. The person She's who's going to decide policy. what uh, what articles go up and how it gets, you know. Yeah, I see you in your little coup in the corner, Quinta. Um, Our audio like, engineer right, is would... like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would take that as maybe a message that I was being sort of displaced. Um, you know, the other thing is that it's, I agree, right? She was sort of on the whitelist and obviously sort of in, um, you know, but but also the hiring of, of our colleague Fiona Hill to uh, to be the director of Russia. Yeah. Um, so Fiona is, you know, uh, one incredibly bright, talented and has a ton of expertise of exactly the nature that the White House has been so hostile to, to considering sort of um, the strangeness of the shift on Russia policy, you know, hiring Fiona is, is a pretty uh, significant sign that that you plan on being uh, uh, tough and clear-eyed about Russia. And so it's hard to sort of tease out, right, is this, are those symbolic hires and those are the people that don't matter? Or is it, right, or does, it, does it matter more that the, the Russia director's coming in? Does that show McMaster's control? Or is that it, he can't fire a 30-year-old? I, yeah, so I, I, this, is, this story is about, you know, it's about three weeks old now, but I keep going back to it because the reporter, who's a friend of mine, is just such an astute observer of human nature and people in this administration. But uh, Olivia Nitzi, who covers Washington for, the, for New York Magazine, had this just kind of great – she's basically covering the psychodrama that is palace intrigue in the Trump administration. And one of the things that she pointed out not long after Bannon was on the cover of Time magazine as the master puppet – you know, the puppet master was – 
there is no puppet master in this White House. It's chaos. They're all lying to each other. They're all lying to themselves. They're lying to reporters. Exactly. Well, it feels a lot like The Apprentice, (laughs) where you have kind of this this cast of characters who are fighting with each other, and the dramas that come from them fighting with one another, that becomes the narrative of, of the show. And then at the end of it, you know, Trump comes in with his lieutenants, which were frequently on the show, his children, says, well, I've been monitoring these things. Well, tell me what happened. What happened on this challenge? Wayne, what did you do about that? Almost as if like in the show, he was never sort of this like micromanaging presence. He was always brought in at the end of all the chaos and the shit that went down to try and sort out what really happened and make a final decision. And I, I wonder to what extent those instincts, perhaps, or that if his affinity for that kind of structure is actually what's at play in the White House, where there's really no one in charge. It's just lots of people clawing at each other. And then he comes in at various moments to settle disputes, or he has his trusted aides, and then he feels that this is the kind of dynamism that he wants uh, in a White House. You know, the thing is, like, there there is a model of the presidency that works like that, where the cabinet secretaries and agencies, you know, compete with one another, tangle, argue, backstab, whatever, around the interagency. And the president comes in, hears everybody out and makes his Solomonic decision. Plenty of presidents have have behaved in that way or used that model. It's a legitimate model. But there's one prerequisite, which is that there are actually people staffing these agencies and they are able to bring their own bureaucratic and policy and political interests to the table. I think what's striking here is that it's a depopulated process. And so it's like it's like The Apprentice meets Seinfeld. You know, it's a competition about nothing mm-hmm. because they can't actually do any po- right. substantive Nothing's policy debate, yeah. right? And and so there are decisions being made, but lower down or out by default or through inertia. But what's actually happening in the White House isn't connected to policy yeah. outcomes. Right. So I'm sure I'm, I, I find that sort of credible in terms of Trump's thinking and like, right, that, that this is sort of his attempt to shape the narrative. The problem is it's not going to work because this isn't an episode of The Apprentice where you get to sort of control the final cuts and and, and manipulate everything that happens to present the story you want to present. Um, so to the extent that, that Trump thinks he's going to be able to control this narrative, uh, the I think the past, you know, uh, 100 days have been a pretty good uh, illustration for him that, no, uh, you have a press corps and and a bureaucracy and, and sort of uh, all sorts of different mechanisms that they have their own narrative to tell. And so to the extent you want to come in and be, you know, the decider here and and, uh, and show yourself to be sort of the wise, ultimate uh, uh, person who, who makes the judgments, um, you need to, that needs to actually be true. Um, and that's not actually what's happening. It's not that these policy fights are occurring, partly because of the reasons Tammy suggested, but but also because Trump doesn't appear to come in and educate himself and, and make a decision uh, that he sort of thinks is in the best interest. It's whoever got his ear last, or Bannon and Kushner make a decision, or it's just kind of chaos, and he doesn't really appear to know what's going on, and his press secretary doesn't appear to be able to articulate what he's thinking, and these tweets are coming in. And so the notion of Trump being this um, in-control individual is 
just absurd. That's clearly not what's happening. He's not presiding over chaos. He's in the mix of this chaos and is utterly unable to control his own staff, his chain of command, the information flow. Or even, as you noted, the narrative about what's going on. And I was really struck by this piece in Politico that came out, I think, last night about paranoia among the White House staffers who are like not using their government issued phones or turning them off and putting them in drawers because they're afraid that they're being used as listening devices. And it's things not like paranoid that. if you're right. <laughs> right. And we now know that they can listen to us through our microwaves. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so all the microwaves in the White House mess. Right. So, you know, I, at a certain point, the the infighting becomes entirely all-consuming and debilitating. But I remember talking to you guys earlier in the administration about whether it's just early days and they'll settle in or whether this is going to be a White House that is in some literal manner disconnected from the levers of government and that they'll be pulling these levers, but nothing happens down below because there's no connection. And it, I, that's how I see it evolving right now. I mean, we are now three months into this and uh, and they haven't yet figured out how to pull those levers. It's like the hydraulics have all been cut and there's just, you're turning, you're turning the wheel or whatever, but yeah, ch- you know, choose your engineering analogy. Yeah. It ain't working. Yeah. Yeah. The thigh bone is not connected to the knee bone. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> now hear the word of the Lord. Right. <laughs> and with that, we're going to move on to object lessons. Uh, who wants to go first with their object? I will go first. Um, so my object lesson is a uh, feature profile in the New York Times magazine um, entitled How a Wonky <gasps> National Security Blog Hit the Big Time. I read that story. I heard about this blog. Is this Ladies the and Lawfare blog? Lawfare. 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 Hit the Profiled big time. Profiled in the New York Times Magazine. You guys need a theme song now. We do. Yeah. Sophia, the get on lawfare. it. <laughs> <laughs> Soon <laughs> we'll like be making another run. <laughs> another <pose. laughs> It'll just the musical automatically play when you come to the site. Um, this is a great piece from Emily Bazelon, who just wrote a little bit about sort of the origins of the site and, and the evolution and, and the role it played in the Obama administration and the role it potentially will be playing in the Trump administration. Um, so it was uh, a nice sort of opportunity to uh, look back over where we've come and, and think a little bit about kind of our evolution moving forward um, and uh, has gotten also some nice publicity and uh, and recognition. So um, my object lesson is uh, is this profile, but also um, in Ben's absence, just a note of like, he made this thing out of just ideas and caring about things. Yeah. And it like really, he and Jack and Bobby grew something that is just really incredible and we all get to be a part of. Well, you guys don't get to be a part of, but me and Quinta get to be a part of. Um, and it's profile worthy and yeah. is awesome. And, that's and Emily really like... captured that too, which I thought was awesome because she's somebody who cares a lot about these issues, researches, reads, writes deeply on all this stuff. And she she got that like right away. You could tell this is somebody who knew this is what this site means and this is where it came from. So, yeah. And I like, yeah. I think, I think it did capture a lot. Um, one thing that I think the profile missed, um, uh, not that it, uh, not that it was sort of tackling this Don't thing, listen to this part, Emily. but the thing that's, um, the thing that it didn't, uh, you couldn't see from reading that profile is that the way it happened was through just an unbelievable amount of work by Ben and that he, he created this thing basically by sheer force of will and an instinct towards mischief. And so that, um, <laughs> I think uh, the that mischief, 
is really the key. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not no part of it. Um, yeah, right. It's not an insignificant I, I part. I will just note that that Lawfare came about when Ben and Jack and Bobby um, cooked it up. And it was partly Ben when I just got this job at the State Department and, and went into the government. Ben said, I'm not going to have time to write a book. I'm going to start a blog. <laughs> <laughs> and I think not only did Lawfare become Lawfare, but I think he published like two books while he was in the State Department. So, All right. Uh, tomorrow, what's your object? Um, so my object is, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about this 29% cut that OMB is proposing for the State Department. And my object is the one paragraph email that the Secretary of State sent out worldwide to his troops uh, as the news broke this morning. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, you know, it's not what I would call reassuring, nor is it, um, the, you know, the kind of message that you would send out to the troops to sort of steal their will to do the tough work ahead. You sometimes see those, um, this I think is, is going to sort of compound what's already a significant morale problem from in the state department. Uh, he says bluntly, that the president's budget is an unmistakable restatement of the needs the country faces and the priorities we must establish. Um, and it it includes, as Tillerson's statements to his team have regularly done, it includes some lines that just don't accord with the facts and will make professional foreign and civil service officers go, huh? Um, for example, the budget is an acknowledgement that development needs are a global challenge to be met not just by contributions from the United States, but through greater partnership with and contributions from our allies and others, as if we're the only country in the world that mm-hmm. gives foreign assistance mm-hmm. <laughs> and as if our our itty-bitty foreign assistance budget, you know, which is less than 1% of the federal budget, um, is, is somehow uh, – outweighing the contributions of of our allies around the world. So, I you know, I, he he tries to kind of gamely motivate them saying I'm eager to realize what we will achieve together, but I think the message that most state department employees will take away from this is man, this guy doesn't get it. He doesn't have our back uh and he has no idea how hard this is going to be. I'm out of here. It's like a doctor giving you a really terrible diagnosis by saying it sucks to be you. <laughs> yes. And that's like the most he said in two months. Yes, it is the most he said in two months. Although he, he actually did have something to say about uh, North Korea on yeah. the road this morning. And he said it to, I think, four reporters. Oh, my goodness. Wow. All right. So he's crawling out of his shell. Go, Rex. Go. We love you. We want to hear from you. It's okay. Come out. Tell us. Talk to us about you, right? Let us on your plane. We've read so much about you. That's why you're a good journalist. You Get just to know coax us. them out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com or is it SpaghettiOnTheWall.com? It's one of the two. Spaghetti on the wall production. Just Google it, guys. Come on. (laughs) Do we have to do everything for you? (laughs) Just go to the Facebook page. It's easier. We're not going to cut that. Just find it online. (laughs) You can follow us on Facebook and find links to what other crap I'm talking about. (laughs) This is the lackadaisical edition. Exactly. Whatever. It's a podcast. If you found it, you're 90% of the way there. 
You can follow us on Twitter or not at RATL Security. Uh, we'll try and get to some listener questions in the coming weeks. Uh, so please, thanks for following us. And when you do download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating or review. That really helps us out. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our show is edited by Jen Howell. The music was performed this week by Rex Tillerson and the Incredible Shrinking Budget. <laughs> nice. I was going to say the hateful 8%, but that sounded like it was too buried in something we talked about before. <laughs> I like that. The Incredible Shrinking Budget. Yeah. Reminds me of one of my favorite movies. The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Ah, Lily yes. Tomlin. I grew up watching that film. I was thinking, honey, I shrunk the kids, but I got gotcha. you. Yeah, it's a little past my time. Yeah. <laughs> it's more of a Lily Tomlin kid. No, of course, our music is performed by uh, Sophia Yan, who obviously is a Lily Tomlin fan because I'm friends with her, so she must be. She must be. Yeah. Who isn't a Lily Tomlin? Who isn't? And if you're not, just unsubscribe. Uh, no, actually, don't. Don't do don't, that. Don't. Leave a five-star rating and review <laughs> before you unsubscribe. Thanks. Um, on behalf of my friends Tamarkoff and Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 